0: I have the great honor and privilege of being joined by Dr. Mark Nanos. He's affiliated with Lund University in Sweden where he's currently researching and working on lectures. He is most known for coining Paul within Judaism and has been at the forefront of this movement for a number of years now, about 10 years. The author of a number of books, including Reading Paul Within Judaism, Reading Corinthians and Philippians Within Judaism, reading romans within judaism and he was also a contributor to zondervan's four views of the apostle paul which i recently listened to on their audible uh, on audible and i'll include a description in the blog and it's a very intriguing resource for anyone interested in the study of paul dr nanos thank you so much for joining me
1: thank you for inviting me i look forward to our conversation
0: so you don't have a Christian background, but you've become an authority on a prominent Christian historical figure, namely Paul or Saul, and his letters permeate much of Christian thought. Can you describe and unpack a bit some of your journey and how you got here? What first piqued your interest in Paul? I'm sure you didn't think when you were five or six or seven, hey, uh, I'll, study, I'll study Paul. Uh, that, that, that's my dream. Uh, yeah. What first led you to study Paul? And what first, yeah, well, your that's interest. A good
1: question. Yes, he would not have been of, of much interest or concern to me uh, as a child, yeah, you know, or even, even until I was a young man and I went back to school doing a Judaic studies degree and was learning more about Second Temple Judaism and reading the rhetoric of the prophets and other Second Temple Jewish groups like the Dead Sea School communities and so on in the, in the mid uh, to late 70s and learning uh, to, to lead them in a more academic environment, think about them, I was struck, and I, I didn't have the, uh, I don't want to give the impression that I was sophisticated about this, but I, I was just struck by when you read that literature, um, and I knew enough about the rhetoric of Paul to somehow just, the question arose in my mind, why is Paul read against his fellow Israelites or fellow Jews, but one never entertains that Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or the other prophets or the Dead Sea Scroll community had left Judaism and were throwing stones from outside when they criticized their fellow Israelites or Jews for, you know, basically not living up to the highest standards according to that group's interpretation of what those would be. And so I did a paper in a class for uh, on Paul, and um, I took the topic of Romans 11, All Israel Will Be Saved, and <clears throat> I knew enough Greek, I'd lived in Greece for a couple of years as a teenager, I didn't know sophisticated Greek or anything, I knew you know, basic Greek, enough to look at lexicons and things, and write a paper in which I basically said, what, what if we read him in this, as if he was Isaiah, in that kind of an echo chamber? And I made the proposition that what Paul was arguing for Israel's restoration uh, what he was explaining to non-Jews was really uh, all the premises were there for someone who was still practicing Judaism and was essentially finding fault with some of his fellow Jews for not practicing the way he thought they should. But he actually was arguing that they will. In time, if you non-Jews, do your part. And that was the kind of mystery he was unveiling, is that God was using his ministry with these non-Jews to provoke his fellow Jews to reconsider this message. And that was somehow part of God's design. So they they weren't as usually characterized. He wasn't characterizing them in any harsher language than prophets do. And in fact, in many ways, much more generous language than the prophets often did. So that was my, that was my beginning. And the other part of my beginning was in, in the 70s in Judaic studies, at least our, at the university I was at, there was quite a focus on uh, history of anti-Semitism, Holocaust studies, uh, medieval uh, studies. We had a fabulous uh, professor uh, there. I think our textbooks maybe in the 8th or 10th edition now and so we um, we thought a lot about, learned a lot about how important anti- the, the way that uh, Christians and, and Western society used Jews and Judaism to think about what it meant to be Christians or Europeans or French or Germans or whatever it was. They had a certain Jews function as a foil. For me, the interesting in Paul... Married up well with noticing the way that, that Paul's voice was a part of that legacy. And it was deep in the every commentary I read and monographs, you know, uh, even the most positive ones coming out of the Scandinavians, with few exceptions, still have this narrative. And even when it's kind of benign, it's still... The other is the Jew or Judaism, the works, the literalists, the fleshly. uh, And that's not to mention the kind of secular uh, uh, anti-Judaism and Semitism that developed in Europe with all of the other kinds of uh, stereotypical tropes. And so at some point after school, I didn't pursue graduate school immediately. uh, At some point, these two kind of came together in my mind and i realized if i was right with my historical hunch which i continue to pursue reading as a hobbyist as an amateur if i was right about that historical hunch it would have a payoff in first of all in christian discourses and secondly in the larger social discourses secular as well of european society and american society and eventually i realized even you know asian societies which were missionized by Cultures that had this view of Jews and Judaism and used Paul's voice as part of either building that view or justifying that view or repeating that view. And so if I was right, this was something I really needed to do. And at the time in the late 70s and early 80s, when I was seeing this, you have to realize. The task seemed so enormous because anybody would tell you and anything you read would indicate that uh, Paul was for faith against works, and works righteousness was characteristic of Jews and Judaism, and so on. So if one was going to break down that, I mean, uh, gateway framework, it, to talk about Paul in terms of Judaism, you have to go through there first. And that would be such an enormous task in studying theology. I thought maybe I'd have to be a Talmudic scholar, which really I didn't think I had the aptitude or interest to pursue. And so um, I just I just lived with it for a long time, basically through the 80s, thinking about it and thinking about how important it was. And every time I would read something, there'd be this, like a punch in the gut. And then, gosh, they don't get it. They don't see that isn't the only way Paul could be read. There's an alternative here. And it, even in Christian-Jewish dialogue, they didn't seem aware of this. Paul, you know, Jesus has been won over, but Paul was still the problem child that kept that dialogue from being able to move past emphasizing the differences and the animosity and calling for goodwill, but not thinking the scriptural texts would support some of those goodwill intentions. So that's kind of what happened. And then and then uh, in the late 80s, I became aware of work that was actually done uh, some 10 years before by Sanders, and then by Don and, uh, and others, and I realized uh, that this new perspective on Paul, and Stendhal especially uh, for me, that this new perspective on Paul made it possible to get to that first base that I didn't think I could ever get to, to start talking about Paul in ways that, that works righteousness would have prevented someone from even being able to begin to consider So i was very excited by that i was also very disappointed with how almost immediately it was being um subverted in my view into the usual kinds of tropes that paul was trying to separate the uh church from judaism and so on as in francis watson's book that came out during that period and so i through a series of readings and so on, I decided to go get that paper, that old paper of mine. And I didn't know the venue. I didn't really have an audience in mind. I didn't really know what I would do with it. But I got it out one night, and I thought I need to, you know, research this and write it up. And uh, what I thought would be an essay eventually just I just got totally caught up in it. And uh, my business was mature enough that I, I had good management people, and I started to really focus on this my energy on this project, and which became a book, The Mystery of Romans. And the subtitle was The Jewish Context of Paul's Letter, and it came out in 1996 with Fortress Press, which was an amazing accomplishment for someone who had a bachelor's degree in Judaic Studies and never taught a class in a university or anything, and was a nobody, even though I went to Society of Biblical Literature for a few years when I, by that time. And then it won the National Jewish Book Award and uh, in Christian-Jewish relations. And so Jewish community was noticing it. Um, and the Christian community in, in uh, some way, I mean, it had a lot of uh, reviews and so on. So I decided that uh, I was excited by then and I decided to make a career change. In the late 90s, I sold my business and, uh, and completed a PhD at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, which became my second book, uh, The Irony of Galatians, uh, Paul's letter in first century context. And during the course of that, I learned a lot more sophisticated um, uh, arguments about rhetoric, how that worked, and irony in particular, but also just all kinds of things that you learn getting a PhD and studying something intensely. At that point, for about 10, more or less focused through the 90s uh, on scholarship. So that's how I kind of got there. And, uh, and then I became, I did some teaching and as a professor and uh, continued to write and if I could just say this I, I did not use the phrase Paul within Judaism that I know of during that time until, I'm not sure somewhere in the late aughts uh, I was actually moving more towards calling this Paul's Judaism um, and some other people who were beginning to share the same viewpoint through the odds we were starting to, you know, we were trying to come up with names because what we were doing was different from the New Perspective, we can come back to that but it was um, uh, being called things like the Radical New Perspective or Beyond the New Perspective or so on and that struck me as a again, we'll come back to this, it just struck me as as not the best way to title what we were trying to do which was which was different, and we can talk about that. But So I, can, I coined the phrase Paul within Judaism, and we had a Society of Biblical Literature sessions that we had start doing as Paul and Judaism, and we were able to, when we reapplied, to change the name. So it's been functioning under that name for about a decade now, just under a decade. And my series of books are using that title, as did the edited volume, The Fortress, called Paul Within Judaism, which involved some other allies on this quest, uh, written to try to be a, uh, function as a classroom text in a seminary or a graduate school. Long answer, but that's how I got, that's how I got interested, so it was a historical interest, and then a humanitarian, or what we call an ideological interest in what kind of work that Paul could do in the world, and I couldn't ignore that.
0: Sure. And to clarify a little bit of what you said a few minutes ago about Paul and the prophets, you, you are arguing that Paul is simply being prophetic. And I think what you're saying is the, the, the prophets of the Old Testament uh, or the Jewish Bible always maintained their Jewish roots, even when they were uh, cri- uh, criticizing God's people. Is, is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't even call it Jewish roots, right? Because they didn't grow out into something else. They just were Jews or Israelites, and that's the way you read them. Yeah. Right? If you read Isaiah, criticize, you know, sacrifices in the temple don't mean anything. But if your heart isn't right, you don't think from that that he therefore is no longer supports the temple cult. Yeah. That's not normal to think that. Sure. Because you think he's an Israelite who exemplifies the values of that cult. And that's what his appeal is based on. Why would you bother to do the cult if you don't care about what the cult really points you to? A heart devoted to God and so on. So when you that's what I mean. The rhetoric of it, not so much foretelling the future aspect of prophecy, but prophecy is prescriptive. It's trying to challenge people to change what, what they're doing to match what they know they should be thinking and doing. And that's within the family. So, you know, instead of, you know, it's, it's, it's fraternal. It's it's calling your own family to be everything that family should be. It's very different than choosing to leave the family and join a different family and throw from outside, mm-hmm. which is the way Paul has been conceptualized, Paul the convert. You know?
0: Yes, and I wanted to get to the language of conversion or call as as you well know, there's debate in scholarship as to whether we should say Paul was converted or Paul was called. Uh, do you have a preference for those two words, or do you prefer even uh, an, another metaphor or word for Paul's Damascus experience? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's a good question, and a good and a good uh, a third part to that question. So, first of all, conversion the way. What matters is the way the conversion's used. One could make the argument that Paul had a conversion in the sense that he had a a, a radical change, of course. He was against a movement, and then he became a representative of that movement. He was against what they claimed about Jesus, and then he represented those claims for Jesus. And one could call that a conversion. But unfortunately, I don't think conversion is useful because of that discourse about conversion, Paul the convert, which is known by people who know nothing really about Paul. He's the quintessential convert in Western society. And he changed his religion, as the way people think about it. He changed his faith from Judaism to a new one, Christianity that is different, and in fact is like polar opposites. One stands for law and the other for love and so on. So conversion is not helpful because there was no Christianity for Paul to convert to. And he never converted from Judaism. This was a kind of Judaism, a fulfillment sort of Judaism, a, a group that claimed that what Judaism really stood for, this group really stood for the best. And that's different. Um, and so, the calling was a very useful corrective that uh, Stendhal Started to champion in the '60s and has caught on. I don't know if he started it, but I, I think of him as starting it. His, his article for that is famous, and um, I think that's useful. But it, it, what it does is it changes it to a more vocational emphasis, um, a calling of vocation. That is, uh, for me, I had a change of vocation. I was a, a businessman with an advertising agency and I, the kinds of things that I spent my day doing. And then I be, became felt called, if you will, when I saw the, the payoff for this view of Paul that I had, and I felt that I had to do that and my, sold my business, changed my career, and so on. And so that's kind of vocational when you think about a calling st- a task to do. And in that sense, it's useful, but I think it also still doesn't quite get at the gravity of the uh, paradigmatic change that needs to take place, the, the way of framing Paul. Um, he didn't just have a vocational change, he changed what his message was, because he was already apparently, and it's, one has to guess, but he was already, based on his kind of language, apparently very interested in something to do with the way non-Jews were being negotiated in Jewish communities that had nothing to do with Jesus groups. And so he continued to do that, but he changed his mind about how that should be done. So anyway, even vocational calling kind of, I think, misses it. I don't actually know what the... I haven't actually... I don't know that I've thought about what the exact best uh, simple term for that would be, but I don't think he, I, I, I just don't think, I think that calling is still maybe, uh, as changes usually are, calling is still maybe accepting a little bit too much of the paradigm of conversion and altering it a little bit inside of it, radically challenging it, but still kind of some frameworks there, some premises are there, and I think those premises need to be challenged. Mm-hmm. In fact, that again falls into this why I think Paul within Judaism for all the problems it may have is as useful because we need to really go back to these texts without forcing them to answer the questions that have been asked by later Christian history and ask what they were asking and what they were trying to do. What was the work these words were doing for the original authors and people? The best that we can do that. And that's a new historical project. That's not the way Paul was approached. That's not the purpose that his words were um, imagined to have. You know, to ask historical questions that wouldn't be just about you and just about what you wanted to be, and and they would actually just be who was this guy? What was he doing? What was his communities? Yeah. And so there's that's part of the problem. It's it, the whole paradigm is. Um, when you do historical work you, you you can't avoid some premises and some paradigms, but you can avoid you can recognize what they are and try to avoid those and keep aware and humble of the next ones that you were shaped by and your questions are shaped by and therefore your answers that are that you consider potential are shaped by. And then you make Paul into be what you want him to be. When that's that's not history. And that's not even fair to Paul, if you want to talk about fairness. But for me, the thing is, that's not the quest. Um, Because I think he can really, was and can be put to uses that are very different and much better for all of us.
0: Mm. And we're going to get to Christians caricaturing Judaism and and why you think that might be and why... uh, we tend to, many Christians tend to strip Paul of his Jewish, uh, Judaism. I was going to say Jewish roots, but, um, I think you're saying Judaism or, or is some, we should, we should avoid even the Jewish roots part is what I hear you saying. Um, and before we get yeah, there,
1: yeah, actually, yeah, Jewish roots or Jewish backgrounds or anything, you just think about it logically, sort of implying that it's moved to something else, but it started there. Mm. And that's the very thing I'm challenging. I think it remained there for Paul. I think it changed for the next generation, some of the next generation, and then two generations, three out. It really changed for all of them, and Paul, Paulinism as we know it, was created, and obviously he could be read that way. He's been read that way now for the better part of 2,000 years, but I don't think that's the way he was originally meaning to communicate or was read. I think. They knew he was practicing a Jewish way of life, and he was bringing these non-Jews as well as Jews into a a vibrant Jewish way of life community. And that's what I mean by Judaism, a way of life created by Jews for Jews. And in this case, you have non-Jews beginning to... uh, And and you have this in other Jewish groups that didn't have anything to do with Jesus groups. Um, How how do they live in a Jewish way if if they're convinced... To various degrees or for various reasons, how 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 can they live Jewishly? If I if I can just belabor that a moment, we can easily imagine non-Catholics who marry into Catholics, or or they're in somehow a large uh, Catholic community, and they can become Catholicish without converting and becoming a Catholic. And they might even out Catholic their neighbors. And we can we can function that. We can understand that. We can actually know somebody is Catholic, born Catholic, raised Catholic, knows a lot of Catholic stuff, but doesn't act Catholic. And we can know somebody who acts very Catholic who isn't Catholic. And so that's a kind of a distinction here. Judaism is a Jewish way of life developed for Jews, and Paul's bringing non-Jews into that way of life, and reorienting them to a Jewish way of life, which is based on reading Scripture. It's based on a certain way of doing holiness, a certain concept of god and of neighbor and that's judaizing them in a sense it's uh, it's it's creating a jewish culture i think that's what he was doing and what pe- people understood he was doing and that's where the questions were raised how do we do this what does that mean if we don't become jews blah 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 which changes therefore what you're looking for the text to provide for you
0: if that makes sense, does that make sense? It does, and and so to the question of why Christians might downplay or suppress uh, the Jewishness of the New Testament in general, are you saying it began early on
1: yeah.
0: in church history, yeah, or is it, it a more modern thing?
1: Yeah, it began pretty early, um, but it didn't. It nothing happened monumentally. You know, nothing happens just for everyone at one time. It's easy to suppose it does, but. These were small groups scattered over large you know, uh, areas, and every Jewish community in which these communities developed were different to different personalities, different languages, different countries, different leaderships, different problems, different politics. And so things developed differently. We can begin to see the movement pretty strongly in the early second century with, you know, we only have so much extent evidence from a few famous people to work from, but most people were, you know, voiceless, we don't know. But once you have groups of people, you know, the, the basic experiment, the project, experiment's not the best word, the basic project was that Paul believed the end of the ages was beginning in these, in these groups, in this movement, and it had to demonstrate that propositional claim of the gospel. At the end of the ages had started in the, as he calls it, the present evil age. Jewish communities could understand that. It wasn't a principle that, they, that many Jews, I mean, some would disagree, of course, but many Jews could understand his basic argument that we're waiting for that time when the lion and the lamb will have a picnic and it won't be the lamb that's being served, <laughs> to use Isaiah kind of metaphor. and So many Jews could imagine a day like that, where the wolves, i.e. the Gentiles, will um, be amongst them, and they won't become lambs. And Paul's argument isn't really against a principle that other people couldn't necessarily agree to. His claim was, and the other Christ followers' claim was, that day has dawned, it has begun. The sun isn't, you know, hasn't risen, isn't obvious for all to see. So it's disputable. It's not empirically verifiable. Babies still die, Romans still rule, bad people still win, so on. But in our groups, because of God's Spirit being dispensed, we need to demonstrate this proposition that the the end-of-the-ages way of life has started in the present age, the eternal way of life. And that way of life is that we're different, but we don't discriminate. We're Jew and Greek. We're circumcised and foreskinned. We're male and female. We're masters and slaves, and that's that's still true. And we're so we're different. And in the larger world, we have different rights. But in our groups, we're supposed to function differently, like the age to come. Now, here's the problem: that's easy to say, hard to do, and very hard for the people who are on the underside of each one of those binaries. So if non-Jews come into Jewish groups, subgroups, that are themselves contested because there are very little subgroups that say that somebody the Romans killed is the Messianic figure. And on the basis of that claim, we're changing our relationship with the non-Jews in our subgroups. They're not on the way to becoming Jews anymore. They represent the other nations worshiping Israel's God as we expect at the age to come, the wolves that are having a picnic with the lambs that's who they are and they need to be treated with respect the problem is that these Gentiles are not going to get that respect unless you agree to the propositional claim and it's a dangerous one to do because there is a way just like a Catholic would say hey you're welcome to come to the Catholic Church and act Catholic and be polite and all that but don't think you're entitled to the sacraments we have a rite of passage that you can complete and you're welcome to do that and we'll we'll conduct you happily through that. But unless you do that, you need to know the difference. Paul was breaking that down. He was that rogue guy saying, like, if a rogue priest came and said, "Yeah, but Jesus really loves everybody who wants him," and we shouldn't make this barrier. We should invite everybody to the. Well, in in theory, that sounds great. In practice, in the present age, that doesn't work. That's what that's what makes groups groups. So, Paul was creating for them a between a rock and a hard place they were no longer to think of themselves as just gentile pagans if you will idolaters who went home to their family and cult and so on and lived a normal life but when they were with these jewish subgroups conformed to jewish ways of life he wouldn't allow that they're no longer to do those other things At the same time, he wouldn't allow them to complete the normal rites of passage that would have satisfied the larger Jewish community and even many probably Jewish Christ followers and just make them Israel because for him that would collapse, that would undermine the claim that something has really changed because that avenue was already open. You don't need Jesus for that avenue. So if that makes sense, I hope it does, then you can sort of track that what he needed to write these letters about was to explain to people he's put in this marginal situation that they have to endure it and they have to do what's right and they have to not be resentful and they have to be respectful and they have to be patient and kind and loving and generous and that they have received mercy. That's why that's so important to realize and they have to live mercifully. And uh, it wasn't because they were better or smarter. And it's not because the other person's worse or dumber. It's just they have this special moment. They need to live it out. They need to hang in there. They need to trust uh, that this is true. And they need to trust God's spirit to lead them into that kind of lifestyle as hard as it's going to be. And these letters are trying to enforce that, to show them, to explain to them what their thinking is needs to be developed because nothing else in their world is confirming what Paul is teaching them and other Christ followers like Paul. Mm. And so they're in this between a rock and a hard place. They're just in this uh, uh, sort of a misunderstood group and a misunderstood group is easily mistreated. Once you have that, you have the seeds for resentment. If, if In social identity theory, this explained, you know, there are several ways to negotiate a boundary. But if you cannot negotiate that boundary, you cannot become, and Paul won't let you become, in this case, a Jew, a boundary could be black and white, as as we have in our culture. If you cannot become white, then there are several strategies. You can act white, or you can do, as in the 60s, a fabulous uh, statement was, Black is beautiful, which is a way of saying you can't have what we have. It's, it turns upside down the paradigm. It was only natural to be expected that these non Jews who saw themselves as having it right, having the spirit, but not being coming Jews and therefore not being fully accepted by the larger community of Jews and by. The the larger non-Jewish community, who knew they haven't negotiated that, so they need to do family and civic cult, or the gods are going to be mad, the leaders are going to be mad, the bad citizens. It's like being, it's like uh, being unpatriotic, only worse because because the, the gods can do bad things to our community. What do you think you're doing? It's only natural that they would be, begin to say we're better than you. We win. You can't be us. You guys don't get it, you're blind, so on and so forth. And once you have non-Jews who are the leaders of these groups, the who become the church fathers, they need to convince their communities that, that they win and Jews and Judaism are out. And once you're thinking with Jews and Judaism about who you are, you don't really need real Jews and real Judaism, you just need the foil. You just need the rhetorical them. And that's what we have in the church fathers. We can see it plainly there, that they teach the people to think with Jews and Judaism as the negative binary other. Once you have that history, which is which is Christian history and became Western society, and once you have the Catholic Church and, and that became the empire, it's only natural that Paul... <laughs> It's not doing Judaism. That's not what he is. That's not what he does. Oh, yes, he was a Jew ethnically by birth, and he had some habits, but that's not important. Those are roots. Those are backgrounds. But he's left that. He's something else. He's this new movement, our movement, against that movement. And actually, in a, if I can just go a little bit longer, actually, in an ironic kind of twist in the, in the uh, 19th century, when... German scholarship primarily, but also some other, um, began to focus on how Jewish Jesus was and reclaimed him as more like a Jewish rabbi than he had been thought of in the past, Paul became even more important to think with to explain the split. So if Jesus was pretty Jewish, Paul was the one who made him not Jewish and created the interpretation of jesus as god and so on so paul actually for the last 150 or so years has become more important to think with about why judaism and christianity so to speak split and so the very project that i immediately imagined and still to a degree imagine is very very young uh, uh, people are will be quick to say, of course he was Judean, Jewish, even Judaism, but they actually don't have it loaded with any real substance as soon as you start talking about it, because they really think of that as what Paul isn't. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that, that I, I would hope that makes sense to most people, because they, they know this narrative. Yeah, They just don't know it, maybe the way that I'm trying to explain it, but they know this is who Paul is, how he's functioned.
0: And I, Does that make sense? It makes sense and I hear you saying, I think I hear you saying Paul was wrestling for communities to maintain diversity and his letters are a result of that?
1: Yes, well he was arguing that they had to, they had to stay circumcised or foreskinned. You know, he actually argues that in some places pretty directly. That's not what matters. That doesn't mean those aren't important, because if they didn't matter, he wouldn't care. Mm. He just lets you be whichever one you preferred. They actually do matter, but together as a group, what matters is that even though you're different, you demonstrate the wolf and the lamb eating the picnic together as different, but no longer harmful to each other. That's really the calling of the ecclesia, of the gatherings. That's what these subgroups were supposed to show to the fellow Jews and to their larger non-jewish families and, and neighborhoods. Yeah and that, that that's the project.
0: And, and you talked about Judaism uh, and you, you've been talking about how it's being caricatured as dry as just being works without grace, without faith. And this is something that the new perspective which you mentioned has tried to uncover that that uh, Judaism, proper uh, doesn't separate works uh, and grace or it's not graceless it's not without faith and you mentioned um, James Dunn who recently passed away and um, Stendhal and uh, people like N.T. Wright Uh, when it comes to the new perspective on Paul can you unpack what you agree with and uh, what you find at fault
1: yes well there are so many moving parts but let's just do a few major ones the principal advantages of the new perspective, breakthroughs of the new perspective, to be uh, commended highly to this day are, first of all, to to start to take Judaism on its own terms. To actually read these texts, not to polemicize, but to actually start to listen to what Judaism is saying about itself, what its texts indicate in a more generous way. That's very different than everything before it almost everything there were a few voices now and then but they were ignored and uh so that that's number one uh number two was the specific insight that when you do that now they did this with a sort of a foundation and a premise and this will lead to one of the problems i have that's pretty protestant that is to say to recognize that judaism is grace based so guess what it's good because it's like us That's not necessarily listening to Judaism on its own terms uh, and figure out what grace means on its terms. And if they were different than your own terms, then somehow it could still be good. That's a little bit different project. But anyway, it it wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't an evil intention. It's just that we always come at things from what we privilege as good versus bad. And that's where the new perspective started. And so Judaism started to look, hey, it's a little bit more Protestant than we thought. It is grace-based. It does have faith. Works are not trying to be done in order to be saved. Works are being done because you are saved, which is actually what Christianity teaches too. That it doesn't mean anything to say that you believe if you don't act like you believe. And so um, in various ways, that was really a big uh, advantage and still is that I would guess from, I ask people this all the time, and I would guess based on those answers, that typically Christians in in churches do not know about the new perspective yet. It's still new, a new idea to them that it's not works righteousness. And there are plenty of voices in the guild uh, of the New Testament and Pauline scholarship who are more traditionalists, who are still fighting them. They'll go find a verse Dead Sea Scrolls or some prophet that says you must do so on and so forth well of course you can find that in Jesus and in Paul Mm -hmm. Um, it's not proof of what you used to think because the paradigm is not right that you're working from so that's still there and, and in that sense it's still very new but in another sense after 40 or 50 years it's not very new at all because it still basically accepts the traditional framework and it moves a few things around. To use Wittgenstein's metaphor, which I happen to love, um, what what happens is you have a river uh, running on a riverbed and you move around some boulders and so the river has to shift a little, but it stays in the same riverbed. The new perspective on Paul is still the traditional riverbed but has shifted a few points, like works righteousness. It shifted that to a different boulder, a boulder that was already there all the way back to the church fathers, the idea that racial privilege was the problem. You Think you're sons of Abraham. You have this already in the New Testament. What it meant in the New Testament and what it came to mean, I believe, are two different things. But what it came to mean in Christian tradition was Jews are arrogant. They think that they've that they're the people of God without having to believe in Jesus and without having... You know, they're kind of a damned if they do, damned if they don't, without having to do the right thing. But they're damned if they try to do the right thing because then they do it for the wrong reasons. Or they get arrogant if they, if they would do it. This whole paradigm is a Christian paradigm. It's not Jewish. And you can fit these texts into it. So in that sense, the new perspective didn't change the riverbed and I believe as do uh, a small group of people under this working uh, kind of working title Paul within Judaism and some don't like the title but maybe choose some other title are trying to actually ask a new set of questions get away from the assumption that this racism is the problem uh, or what Jimmy Dunn calls uh, uh, national uh, exclusivism, ethno-eccentric exclusivism, what Wright calls nationalism. These are really mistaken notions. Every group is ethnocentric because it's a group. It has something about itself that you wanted to be a part of or you are a part of that makes it different from everything else, and you privilege that. Mm. You don't have to have a... Uh, You don't have to privilege it as superior and inferior, which is, but unfortunately, normally that's what happens. But you do have to privilege it as different. That's normal. Otherwise, it's not group. And um, so to get away from this whole paradigm, again, it's trapped in a traditional place and it's changing some clothes, it's changing some stones in the river, but it's not saying, hey, this whole thing is built on a foundation that misunderstood. What these original people were doing and what they were writing about and that's what we want to do so that's why what we're doing is different is more radical it's been called a radical new perspective but you could probably imagine i don't like that because doing history and trying to discover this person it's not radical if paul is a torah observant jew it's only radical if measured by the traditional view it radically challenges that. But it's not radical by itself. It's actually, I think, historically probable. It's the traditional view that's actually radical mm-hmm. <laughs> by changing away from probably what it was. And so in that sense, what we're doing is different than the New Perspective Project, but it, shaped, um, it created a world in the last 40 or 50 years where it could be done. I, I don't know that I would have come back to ever write what I dreamt about writing and pursuing, Without the new perspective, but I don't think I could do what I have done had I stayed in the new perspective, you know, view as a limitation on what Paul probably meant and they could mean uh, going forward. So I'm in a debate with them, and I'm, and uh, and they're very they're very brilliant people who are highly trained and. Uh, parsing this out and figuring out what the differences are and why is very difficult because they're not just little bits and pieces they're the foundational premises right. that you bring to reading a text in fact, I should I know my answers are wrong I should be able to this in a moment you know, in a way this is kind of a simple project when you go to read something you have assumptions and premises what you think you know of a person or the book or the format or venue. And Paul's letters have been read with an assumption that his audience knows he has left Judaism. He, he eats pork. It's, not, it's indifferent to him. He doesn't care about those sorts of things. He'll do them in order to try to win Jews and act Jewishish. But he really isn't Jewishish, which means he's a deceiver uh, from the negative side and um this has been going on this understanding of paul has been going on so long that it just seems self-evident but i say try this hypothesis try to read his letters with the assumption that those people know gosh paul was very jewish he would never eat pork this guy was very orthodox if you will which is slightly anachronistic but just to think of him he would never do that but he could be he could eat with non-jews just as orthodox can today just wouldn't eat their food when he'd bring his own food or as i would argue these were jewish groups and so they were all eating jewish food that's who was serving the meal when you go to the catholic group church they put together the meal and you're the guest the non-jews are the guests so they would know when paul starts to write about something this guy's—they wouldn't have even asked the questions or thought the ways that later people did, who thought he wasn't coming from it as a Jewish person, behaving in Jewish ways, and leading down to a more Jewish lifestyle. Hmm. And if you just think about his texts like that, and just ask questions of them, which is what I do in my work—if you—if you—if you look at these uh, collected essays or other books. I try to show you how with these assumptions, here's how the exegesis proceeds and demonstrate it from the text. Now I'm not just saying, you know, let's make nice. I'm saying these are alternatives often that make better sense of the, of, of the lexical and syntactical and contextual and historical critical methods that we can bring to the task. There are at least significant alternatives. And when you string them all together, You have a different perspective. Right. So sorry that I went on so long with that, but no,
0: it's it's great. And you're you're saying Judaism, what you're arguing for, Judaism has a lot more in common with quote unquote Christianity because uh, the the two don't aren't as separated as 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 we make them out to be. Is is that what you're saying?
1: Well, not exactly. Actually, Christianity did grow up to be a different animal, Hmm. but. It's not that different from Paul's communities, which are pre-Christian. You see how the language can even get in the way of the concept? Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're pre-Christian, there's no Christians yet. He doesn't become one. Uh, He's a Jewish guy who believes Jesus is Messiah. Um, And he believes that that Messiah is also the savior reconciling people from the other nations. That's a totally Jewish Judaism thing. Christianity actually becomes something else that has a Jewish background, Jewish roots. But that's not where Paul was. It's anachronistic to place Paul in that later basket. So this causes a challenge for the Christian reader today, also for the Jewish reader. But for the Christian reader, it's a more vital challenge. Because... This means that Paul has to be read cross-culturally. He was not writing to churches like mine, to Christians. He was writing before that. Mm -hmm. So I have to now translate Paul into my own culture instead of just appropriate Paul or appropriate my culture to Paul, force it on him, and make him say what I want him to say. Because I already believe it, because my life's already been shaped by it. But rather, maybe he's saying something different and means something different. And I need to go through this respecting him and what he might have meant and trying to understand it and wrestle with it and figure out what I'm going to do with that, what it means for me, or maybe doesn't mean for me. And I know this sounds frightening, but you know, Christians have done this. They wrestled through slavery, which is in Paul and the New Testament, and it's not challenged as wrong. They've wrestled through uh, issues with women, or at least there's still many places where this is uh, taking place. They have wrestled through some of these anach- anachronistic ways of thinking about everything that was written and happened 2,000 years ago, you know, nothing happens after it that isn't spoken to directly that can't be challenged hermeneutically on the grounds of moral principle, on the grounds of a different culture, on the grounds of context on the grounds of of justice and um, so that's the challenge and that can be a really big challenge if you're not willing to to face up to it. It's also a challenge for Jews in fact most Jews um, reflectively don't like this view either, because it moves Paul back onto the map of Judaism and says we have to deal with him as part of interpreting Second Temple Judaism, which is the background for rabbinic Judaism or the roots for rabbinic Judaism. So we now have to deal with Paul's texts, put them on the table as Jewish texts. Well, that's also a problem because he's been a place that could be used as a foil for Christianity as the binary opposite in reaction, of course, because the Jewish community has been the minority community that's been harmed in reaction to that. And so that's threatening. That's not really necessarily attractive.
0: Yeah. And this is, there's so much more to unpack. There's so many more questions, but I want to respect your time and ask just this final question about, what are some of the consequences of stripping Paul of his Jewishness, uh, and what are some positives of restoring Paul to his to his Jewish identity, to his deep and rich Jewish identity?
1: Yeah, well, we've pro- probably covered that with my long-winded uh, answers <laughs> to the to the previous ones. Um, but to speak to it specifically, yeah, the problem is that that um, Paul has been a part of. Uh, Of giving voice to the othering of Jews and Judaism from the ideals, norms, ways of life that represented the original Christ followers who were doing Judaism, who were Jews, and non-Jews who were learning to be Jewish-ish, if you will, uh, culturally, without ethnically going through the transformation rites to become Jews. So, negatively, you know, it's not accepting that and resisting that and forcing Paul to be the place that you can go to know that you are different and better than Jews and Judaism. Mm. The positive is The challenge to go to Paul and say, well, what if what he did was Judaism and he was bringing people into Judaism, then I don't need to other Jews and Judaism to try to understand the origins of my own faith community, even if my faith community is no longer Jews and Judaism. Mm -hmm. So the positive thing is that you've, you know, in social identity terms, what you've done is. You have softened a boundary into a subgroup boundary so you have hard boundaries if you imagine a circle of Judaism and a circle of Christianity and they sort of touch each other at the origins but instead what you have is a bigger circle of Judaism in which you had a small subgroup circle of Christ followers and it began to move outside of that circle of Judaism Where that boundary became hard and different, and it became a different circle, and you begin to then move it back in in your own self-identification. For in the Christian circle, you're moving Judaism into it, but in the in the Jewish circle, you're moving your own sense of self and origins into the Jewish circle as a subgroup. And even though it's not Jews and Judaism now, they're very different. They've grown different, and you have. All sorts of different things to that are implications in this, but your self-identity isn't doesn't have to privilege othering in negative ways Jews and Judaism. Right. And that could be enormously healing not only for Jewish Christian relations, not only for uh, the way that Christians talk about Jews and Judaism, whether it's using Paul's voice or other voices, and not only the way they I, they conceptualize Jews and Judaism but once you've change this instinct to other from Jews which you have in the text it could help change the instinct to other other others mm-hmm. whether it, who've been disadvantaged in the Christian culture whether it's women whether it's people of color whether it's uh, minorities or or people of disadvantage of of all kinds, uh, socially, economically, uh, physically, um, you know, the background from what part of the world they're from, the primitive concept, all these things. Instead of the need to sort of... uh, instinctual need to privilege uh, as better rather than understanding that you're different but not necessarily better because if you have to negotiate the Jewish thing and realize that's where your origins are it might help you negotiate all these kinds of others to say there's differences but I don't have to privilege in a way that diminishes the value the beauty of the other just because it's different than me why don't I find ways to honor it
0: Well, yes, and uh, we've run out of time, but I would love to have you on again, and there are so many other questions we could we could cover. There's so much more ground we could cover, but I want to thank you personally for your time, for your work and research, and uh, mostly for your tone, your grace, and uh, your voice of careful reason. Thank you, Dr. Nanos.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity, and um, I would love to speak with you again. Maybe we can do some more textual exegetical demonstration of of these sort of big ideas.
0: Definitely. Let's plan on it. God bless.
1: Okay. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Bye bye.